Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, normally, I do my rigmarole about come to the Dispatch um, to check everything out, but I'd rather just tell you about the fact that we are doing this 30-day free trial for people, um, for subscribers or interested parties who haven't done the full membership yet. Uh, you can sign up and give it a whirl, see what you've been missing, get my midweek uh, G-File, get all of David French's newsletters, um, get access to some of the Dispatch Live events, I think, and and all the rest. And hopefully some of you will stick around um, afterwards and decide that you want to become uh, full paid members of the community. I know I harp on this, but if everybody who listened to this podcast um, would just uh, sign up, there's just some amazing things that we could do. We would you know, double our paid subscribers. And um, there's a cat that's really trying to step on my keyboard. Um, no, but we could seriously, we could do all sorts of really exciting new things. Uh, we're growing faster than our business plan called for, but uh, we've got a big appetite to do even more exciting things. And we think we're really well positioned for after the election to uh, grow gangbusters. And it'd be great if, if more remnant listeners could get in on the ground floor. Um, so if you go to the homepage, you can find the link for the free 30-day trial. And um, I really hope you'll do that. So uh, it's been, you know, <laughs> I said somewhere, you know, um, what a year we've been having this last week. Um, so much has happened. I don't want to dwell on the Woodward stuff too much. Uh, I think basically people are baked in to all that. And I actually had my say and all that on the, on the midweek G file. Um, I kind of blew up what I was writing and gave my take on all of that. Um, I am, I will say, you know, there's this weird controversy with a lot of like professional journalists, uh, uh, wagon circling around Woodward on this question of whether or not he did anything wrong by withholding this information. Now, the the thing is, if you're an outright Trump supporter, you don't think that Trump lied, right? I mean, that is now the official line. Um, all of the usual suspects have come out with their versions of it, that they went and cherry-picked claims, you know, things where he said, I don't want to cause a panic here and there. And so he said it publicly, and therefore there's no big deal if he said it privately, yada, yada, yada. Um, I'm not entirely convinced by all of that, but fine, you know, that's a predictable, um, and ultimately at least rhetorically defensible position to fall into. 
Um, I just think it's kind of irrelevant to the fact that Donald Trump has handled the pandemic terribly. And, um, and we knew that he was downplaying the pandemic. We saw it with our own eyes. We didn't need this tape to show us that. Um, there are countless examples of him um, contradicting the stuff he said to Woodward about it being, you know, he told Woodward it was deadlier than the flu. And then he goes out and tweets all sorts of stuff later about how it's, you know, like the flu and all that. But whatever, I, that's, that's a boring argument to me already. Um, the thing is, if you're part of the sort of pro-Woodward resistance world, your argument is that Trump did lie and people died, right? That's the argument, is that he knew and he even admitted, you know, he said the words, um, sort of a you're damn right I ordered the code red moment with, with Woodward. And he said he was downplaying it. And whether whether Trump supporters think that's defensible or not, that's not the, the issue where, that I'm disagreeing with. According to Woodward's own logic, according to virtually every host on MSNBC from, uh, from you know, 6 a.m. to midnight, the argument is, is that Woodward's claims or Woodward's tapes prove that Trump lied and people died. That is the argument that Woodward wants out there. That was the thrust of the Washington Post story. And so the problem is that there's an inherent tension in that. If it's your case that this is an admission that Trump was um, deliberately concealing the true nature of the panic for whatever psychological reason we can, or political reason or economic reason, we can have those arguments all day long. But if it's your position that um, this information proves that he was at a crucial time downplaying the pandemic, then by your own standard, Woodward had news that could have prevented people from dying. Um, and I listened to a fairly endless diatribe from Joe Scarborough this morning on precisely this point. And so if, if you accept that premise, what is the moral argument for withholding this information until your book comes out? And, you know, I, I think one of the perennial sort of uh, sophomoric thumbsucker questions is what's the difference between ethics and morals? And um, usually, you know, the standard definition is, is are basically that morals have to do with objective standards of right and wrong, um, while ethics have to do with the rules of professional conduct in a certain sphere of life, right? I mean, like legal ethics prescribe or proscribe you from revealing client information. Journalistic ethics prevent you from revealing sources. You know, it's pretty obvious stuff. Um, doctors have all sorts of, you know, ethics governing patient privacy and doing no harm and all of these kinds of things. And normally ethics and morality are supposed to overlap um, pretty nicely. It's sort of ethics ideally are supposed to be morality put into institutional action, but it doesn't always work that way. Um, and some professions have, you know, clear carve outs to the normal rules. Uh, I believe I'm right about this, that lawyers, priests, uh, therapists, a whole bunch of people can violate the rules of confidentiality if they have a reasonable belief that they will be saving a single life. Um, if you're a psychologist and you've got a patient 
who is talking more and more ominously about killing his wife or becoming a mass shooter or something like that, and you can't talk him out of it, you don't think therapy is going to do it, you have an ethical obligation to violate your other ethical restraints and do something about it. Call law enforcement, you know, uh, take action um, that will require violating, you know, confidentiality. And um, it seems to me that if you can have that standard for a priest or a therapist or a lawyer, you know, if, if a lawyer's client says, you know, I'm going to go kill that witness, the lawyer, I believe, maybe I'm just watching too many movies, not only has to try to counsel him against that, he either has to uh, withdraw as his attorney, but I also think he's supposed to inform somebody. Um, and so the thing is, is if, if Woodward's own theory of the case or the Woodward apologist's theory of the case is that Woodward was withholding information that the public needed to know to be able to deal with the pandemic more responsibly, um, then it's one of these instances where um, ethics are in friction with morality. And I, look, I don't think this is a cut and dried thing. I'm not an absolutist on this. I don't know that it actually would have made a difference um, if Woodward had released the, the conversation, you know, that afternoon. Um, but you can certainly, uh, just to, to explicate the point, you can come up with all sorts of hypothetical situations where, forget Trump, just a president told a reporter something incredibly damning and dangerous that um, put lives in peril. And the idea that somehow the journalist has to observe these strict rules of confidentiality until the book is published, and, and Woodward has mastered this art of creating ground rules to get people to talk to him and off the record, on the record, and all that kind of stuff. You can just see a scenario where, you know, sort of a Hollywood scenario where it would be obvious that Woodward would have to say something and do something. And yet the people who are defending Woodward, you know, they're using abstract arguments to say that that would never be the case. And I just think that's nonsense. And it's particularly nonsense when you're out there saying that this is the case with Trump. There's just a tension between these two things. Um, then again, I've never been, you know, this wild fan of, of journalistic ethics. I have a much simpler code of, you know, you don't lie, you keep your word, you know, with sources and you, um, and you behave responsibly. I, I think the, the intricacies of a lot of the Columbia journalism school stuff, and I was talking to Andy Ferguson about this on the second podcast this week is really just sort of like guild stuff. Um, it, it, there, there are these rules that are in effect, a kind of barrier to entry for other people to commit journalism. And the truth is, is that there is no special right that accrues to journalists about anything. We all have the right to commit journalism. The First Amendment doesn't say it's only for reporters. The Constitution does say that the press deserves special protections, but they don't say that it is some sort of credentialed guild that the government gets to define. And that's one of the reasons why I've always been like adamantly opposed to licensing journalists. Because basically what that does is says that there are certain people who are, um, who have more rights than, more constitutional rights than other people do. And this became a big thing at the, in the early days of the, of, of blogging, 
where a lot of bloggers got into the journalism business and it pissed off a lot of professional journalists and they got really haughty about it and they wanted to come up with licensing standards and all that kind of thing um, to protect journalists from competition. You know, you can kind of, this, this is kind of like a Shoshana point about, you know, the way that uh, uh, licensure works. Licensure is a barrier to entry from, from competitors. And I just don't think that's how we want journalism to work in this country. That doesn't mean that you can't credential certain journalists for certain events and, and that kind of thing. That's up to the people holding the event. It's not up to the journalists. The journalists don't have like some special badge that lets them go in, you know, past a police line. Um, the, their ability to go past a police line is granted by the police department in it for a specific circumstance, but it is not, it is not a special right that accrues to journalists in all cases that doesn't accrue to other people. Um, but you know, this does bring to mind, I, I have this, so do the Dune movie is coming out with the first trailer is out. I'm excited about it. Although, um, I feel a little bit like Charlie with the Charlie Brown with the football on this. Um, I was a huge Dune fan. I keep meaning to reread the books. Um, but previous attempts, I think there were two, maybe three, but there were definitely two attempts. There was one, there was the famous one uh, with Kyle McLaughlin in 1986. I think it was 86. Um, that was just awful. I think, was it David Lynch who directed that? Which was just a terrible choice. You might as well pick Woody Allen. Um, and then there was like a miniseries thing that I think was on like the sci-fi channel and it had William Hurt in it. And that, that, that wasn't good either. And, um, so I'm really hoping that this thing will be good. Um, it's the last of the, I think it's arguably, well, I don't know, maybe there's some Asimov stuff, but it's one of the last great science fiction fantasy books, uh, to never be successfully translated onto film. Um, it took years for CGI and, and all that other stuff to catch up with um, the Lord of the Rings to do it in a way, you know, I don't, I have some issues with those movies, but um, the technology was finally there to uh, make those movies sort of like, you know, I was a Marvel comics geek for a very long time as most people who know me know. And most superhero movies, um, really just didn't work on the special effects side because the technology just simply wasn't there. Um, and I, I still remember the, uh, Saturday morning cartoons from the 1960s for the Marvel, for various Marvel comics that had, um, basically it was just like one notch above just putting the camera on different panels of a comic book page. And, you know, they would have a, a static picture of Thor and then they would just animate his, um, his hammer swinging around. And, uh, that was good enough for me at the time, just cause I was so jazzed to see that stuff. And I still think that some of the theme songs from that were freaking awesome. You know, there was the Captain America one when Captain America throws his mighty shield. And there was the almost creepy lounge lizard one for Iron Man which I will not attempt to sing because it will cause people to vomit. Um, and clearly the best Saturday morning cartoon or the best cartoon 
comic book uh, product for my entire childhood was the Spider-Man one or the Spider-Man ones. And again, a fantastic theme song. Um, but anyway, the, the, the live action ones were really bad. I mean, like the Captain America one from the eighties was just brutal. Um, and now like, I think the problem goes the other way where the CGI and special effects are so good that the, um, the part that really suffers is actually the, the, the cool, weird, trippy stuff. And, um, anyway, that's one of the reasons why I loved the, uh, into the spider verse movie, because it captured stuff about comic books that, um, can't really be captured in live action because it's, there's a whole other sort of magical, um, improbable otherworldly part that, you know, like the Avengers movies, um, they made, they make sort of the action stuff kind of believable and the buildings falling over believable, but some of the magic of comic books is kind of lost. Anyway, back to Dune. Uh, the only reason I brought up Dune was this guild thing. I'm, um, I, one of the, one of the, one of Frank Herbert's inventions in Dune, which I really think was kind of brilliant was his establishment of these sort of these guild characters, right? There was the, um, the mentats who were basically walking computers kind of like, um, you know, they came out before Star Trek, but they were, I have to imagine that the, the, the archetype of Spock and of Vulcans generally in Star Trek was based at least a little bit on, on the mentats. And then there were, you know, there were doctors, guilds and all sorts of other things in the whole, whole value of members of these guilds was that they couldn't be corrupted to violate their oaths and their ethical training. And, um, I always thought that there was, that that's actually something that could be in our future as, you know, the faith and trust in institutions runs away. This whole idea of creating, um, professions that once you pay the correct, you know, fee, you can expect absolute uh, loyalty and professionalism from a guild member to do the kind of things that you want them to do. Um, I think that that's, it's, I, of the, you know, I, I can't really envision the Dune universe ever coming to be real with the giant sandworms and the sort of Muslim ripoff Fedayeen and all that kind of stuff. But, um, um, this idea of the market creating a demand for incorruptible servants, which is an idea that in some ways goes back to the progressive era or even before that to Auguste Comte um, and his religion of humanity stuff. Um, I think there's something there. And I think that you could see how that would become um, uh, a really desirable, you know, uh, service um, in a future economy. Um, but in the meantime, I don't like guilds. Uh, I tend to distrust them. I think that they are essentially conspiracies against the public good, against the proper flowing of the market. I have a soft spot in my heart to some extent for uh, labor unions, merely in the sense that they're using their combined labor power as a source for bargaining. But I hate public sector unions, and I think they're a, they're a true force of of evil. And I think that you know, uh, 
most examples of licensure, I shouldn't say most examples. There are many, many, many examples of licensure, um, you know, where 4,000 hours to qualify to braid hair is just a fundamentally sinful way of locking people out of the job market for their own benefit, for the benefit of a few people. And I don't like that kind of stuff. Um, gosh, how did they get in? Oh, so anyway, um, the thing I was working on on Wednesday when the Woodward stuff broke is a little bit relevant to all of this. Um, the other day, um, I written a column about that. Um, I think her name is Vic, Vicky Osterweil, something like that. She's the woman who wrote the in defense of looting thing. And, um, I wrote about it. I think I talked about it on this podcast before. I think it's a work of sort of profound, uh, what I call neo-barbarism. It, it ties kind of directly into, you know, suicide of the West. And that my argument is, is that, you know, liberal democratic capitalism really is as far as we've been able to discover, um, the highest plateau of, of human civilization. Um, I'm not saying there isn't something better out there, but I've never seen it. I don't know what it is. Um, you know, Francis Fukuyama talks about how the aim of all, um, developmental political science and economics, um, is to get to Denmark as he puts it. Um, by which he means a, a society that is democratic, with strong institutions, that follows the rule of law, that protects minority rights, that protects property rights. You know, Denmark is a little more social, social democratic than I would like, but I'd take his point. And, and um, there are very few um, countries in this world that qualify as having reached the Denmark status. Most countries in the world are um, either authoritarian or quasi authoritarian. They're what, uh, Douglas Norris would call natural states where, um, you have, you may not have monarchs, but you basically have strong men and weak institutions and, um, power is wielded by a closed system of elites that may trade power amongst themselves, but they actually don't lose. Uh, they're not willing to actually open up the system and allow innovators, entrepreneurs, um, and new political actors, um, have their fair share of power. In, in, in Suicide West, I wrote about what happened to the Republic of Venice, which the founding fathers study very closely and talk about in the Federalist Papers, where it was on path to being the Denmark of its age, right? Or the United States of its age. It was, um, uh, very entrepreneurial, it had, um, a, I think it was the doge who, um, was answerable to maybe not, uh, every citizen in terms of voters, but answerable to, um, uh, you know, a, a diver basically a parliament, um, a diverse, you know, cohort of elites that, um, appointed him as a, essentially as a civil servant, um, who, uh, did not acquire to himself, you know, monarch, monarch-like powers or dictatorial powers, but rather sort of like a Lee Kuan Yew type just made the, I, <laughs> the boats run on time as it were, since we're talking about Venice anyway. Um, and the problem was, was that over time, 
the established powers that be got tired of being threatened by competition from others. And so they closed what was called the golden book, and which, which was the book that you could be inscribed in to be a member of, I can't remember what it was called, the Parliament of Venice, something like that, the, 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 the Assembly of Venice. Um, and all you had to do was sort of be a successful entrepreneur. You didn't have to be an aristocrat or anything like that. You didn't have to come from a good family. Um, you just had to have sort of bourgeois success. And this became too much of a threat to the establishment. And so the Republic of Venice backslid and closed the golden book and basically created once again an aristocracy. And this is sort of the running theme of so much of the stuff I write and talk about is that, that this is how human nature works is that human nature invade human nature doesn't really love liberal democratic capitalism. Um, it wants something that feels more natural and things like monarchy and dictatorship and authoritarianism, um, or theocracy, uh, you know, hierarchical modes of social organization feel more natural. And so if you don't um, stay vigilant and on guard against the encroachment of how human organization worked for the previous 10,000 or 100,000 years, that's how you backslide into um, authoritarianism of one kind or another. And, um, and that's how, you know, that's how democracies die. And the, anyway, so the, 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 in defense of looting thing is a, almost a pristine example of what I am talking about. It's this, this woman who makes this really incandescently stupid argument that, well, first of all, looting is fun. Um, and that it's, you know, uh, you know, liberating for queer people and all these nonsensical things. Um, and that it's justified, uh, because black people and also just other people who don't like liberal democratic capitalism are mad or that their ancestors were wronged. And obviously with African-Americans, their ancestors were wronged. Um, but it's this idea of not only collective guilt, but intergenerational guilt. It's also this idea that celebrates revenge on innocent parties. Uh, you know, her argument is very similar to, um, you know, the arguments that you would get from Hutus and, uh, you know, Irish Catholics and, um, basically any country anywhere in the world that has been, um, uh, torn apart by, uh, tribal grievances and historical memory of generations past and all that kind of thing. And the, anyway, so the thing that I think is sort of interesting about it and which I was starting to write about before the Woodward thing is the other day, uh, Sean Trendy at Real Clear Politics sent me a, a, a DM on Twitter and, um, he gave me permission to write about this. So that's the only reason I'm divulging it. But, um, and he had this, he floated this idea that, um, um, People like her get much more credibility and um, and much more of a hearing in you know public life. You know that she got she kind of burst on the scene with that that interview on NPR, this Osterweil woman, um, because they have so completely mastered 
the language of sort of academic wokeness, you know, uh, you know, Oscar Wilde couches all of this neo-barbarian crap in phrases like cis hetero patriarchy and, um, and because, and so anyway, my theory, and I think he's right, you know, it's like, he says, you know, if, if, you know, various right-wingers come out and say ridiculous things or write ridiculous things, um, they're almost immediately dismissed and mocked by, uh, sort of journalistic elites because they understandably make no effort to couch their BS in all of this jargon, right? All of this fashionable terminology, all of the shibboleths that define so much campus nonsense. And so it's just, you know, when, I don't know, uh, Steve King, to pick an example out of the air, if he comes out with a book, you know, attacking, you know, brown people um, for this or that crime, he he's not going to do it in the language that checks all the right shibboleth boxes with academia. And so it's just going to be kind of obvious that what he's saying is horrible. Um, but this woman can defend, you know, the ransacking of Korean grocery stores based upon some, you know, 10 point connect the dots BS about how Korean grocers are part of um, the the cis heteropatriarchal capitalist system, and that therefore they deserve what they're getting, and because it's done in that kind of language, it seems like a much more serious argument when it's just really just profoundly stupid. And um, I should say, just in case I'm pronouncing it wrong or people don't know what a shibboleth is, shibboleth actually I can't remember exactly where in the Bible it comes from. I think I've talked about this before. But the original word um, is, I think it's for some kind of plant or something like that. And it, it was, so there was some episode in the Bible where um, one tribe completely wiped out another tribe and, or almost completely wiped it out. And they set up a checkpoint for, to catch uh, refugees from this enemy tribe who might be trying to sneak back home or sneak back into their territory. And the test that they did, that they came up with was that this, I think they call them the Canaanites. Um, they couldn't make the TH sound. And, um, and so they asked them to say the word shibboleth. And because they would sort of say it, uh, in a non-lispy way or in a lispy way, I, I'm getting all the details wrong, they could out them as members of this other tribe and then they would kill them. And so a shibboleth has come to mean simply um, a word or a kind of language that you use to signal your part of the in-group. And academia is absolutely notorious about this kind of thing, that you can say incredibly dumb things um, or meaningless things. And, but if you do it in, if you, if you come up with the right word salad to say it, it passes off as being smart. And, um, hold on. I have this, uh, I wrote about this a long time ago for an old G file called Orwell's orphans, like almost 20 years ago. And it, it's always stuck with me. Um, 
some of you may remember there was this guy, Dennis Dutton, who was a wonderful guy. I mean, I never met him personally, but we emailed and I knew people who knew him. And he ran this thing called Arts and Letters Daily, which was a really fantastic digest of what was going on in the worlds of arts and letters, you know, culture, academia, and all the rest. And he was a brilliant curator of this stuff. It was basically a drudge report for eggheads, but really, really well done and not pretentious. And in fact, Dutton was so against pretentiousness, he created um, for several years a bad writing contest to expose the, the pretensions and pieties of professional academia. And so I'm going to read you, this is one of my favorite examples. Um, this was the winner one year in the bad writing contest. It was by gender theorist, gender, gender theorist Judith Butler. And she said, okay, I'm going to read this. The move from a structuralist account in which capital is understood to structure social relations in relatively homologous ways to a view of hegemony in which power relations are subject to repetition, convergence, and rearticulation brought the question of temporality into the thinking of structure and marked a shift from a form of Althusserian theory that takes structural totalities as theoretical objects to one in which the insights into the contingent possibility of structure inaugurate a renewed conception of hegemony as bound up with the contingent sites and strategies of the re-articulation of power. Now, a couple of things to say about that. First of all, that was one sentence. Second of all, there are moments, you know, if I really strain where I can kind of think, maybe I can figure out what she's talking about, but it is impossible for me to credit the idea that this is the best way to communicate whatever idea that she has in here. The whole point is not to communicate it. The whole point is, it's basically a modern form of esoteric writing that communicates to other members of the club um, that she's in on the game. And, um, and I've told this story before about how my friend Vin Canato, when he was defending his PhD thesis, and one of the dissertation, one of the women, one of the professors on the dissertation committee um, said at the very beginning, look, I want to say at the outset, um, this is just really well written. It's journalistic. It's, it's easy to read. It's, um, uh, clear, um, and, um, really accessible. And as a journalist, my response to something like that would be, thank you. But Vin's heart sunk <laughs> because, that was basically a massive put down in um, in her world of academia because you are not supposed to write clearly in a way that everybody is supposed to understand. You're supposed to, you know, uh, speak in a way that only the meisters at the Citadel will completely understand. And um, and I think this is a real problem. I mean, that we have in our culture where. Uh, if you can use the right words, right? If you can frame your ideas in the language that a bunch of 20-something and 30-something TV producers were told when they were in college signified that you were really smart. They just sort of assumed that you must be really smart. And you can get away with 
introducing into the sort of bloodstream of the body politic profoundly dumb ideas or profound, and sometimes they're not necessarily dumb, although I think a lot of them are, um, but profoundly radical or pernicious ideas, so long as you gussy them up with all of this verbiage. And I think you see this kind of thing all of the time. Um, and it's not just, it's just not with crazy terminological stuff and weird words and weird syntax. It's also just certain buzzwords. You know, there's that woman, Sarah Jiang, who, um, you know, got in a lot of trouble when she was named to the New York Times editorial board because people dug up all of these just factually racist tweets about white people. And um, I read the other day that she got quietly moved off the editorial board and is now just a contributor, but they still celebrate her and um, are proud to have her on the team. And she recently wrote this repugnant piece about, you know, questioning whether or not America was really a better country than uh, China. And, you know, look, I have no problem with Chinese people being attached to the historic notion of Chinese nationhood and Chinese culture and all of that. And, you know, in matters of taste, uh, you know, you're, you're going to have to tell, I can't remember what the Latin phrase is, but you know, in matters of taste, there, there, there's no point in disputing because people have, you know, different preferences. I would think less of a Chinese person who um, thought that their country was objectively worse than the United States in the abstract, right? We're talking about sort of the traditional notion of the Chinese people and Chinese culture and all that. But um, in the context of China today, as it's run by the Communist Party, it is just simply morally repugnant to talk about China being a quote unquote better country than the United States of America. Um, you know, uh, and, and she runs through this stuff where, you know, she says, you know, yeah, the Uyghurs, yeah, the Chinese are rounding up Uyghurs and putting them in concentration camps. And then she does this, you know, tendentious moral equivalence nonsense where she says, but America is putting immigrants in, you know, detention centers and yada, 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 yada. Um, you know, this, this call, I mean, it, it doesn't even rise to the crappy moral equivalence that we saw during the Cold War, but it does call to mind William F. Buckley's famous phrase where he said, you know, um, he was talking about, and I write about this all the time, so forgive me, um, where he was responding to, you know, the moral equivalence arguments that you would get from lots of, lots of liberal intellectuals and a lot of, you know, democratic senators. Um, what's his name? Gosh, I'm spacing it. But, um, the guy who was Bill Clinton's like mentor, he was a Senator from Alabama or Arkansas or something like that. And he was a, just a crazy, uh, moral equivalence guy about all this kind of stuff, really anti-American and a lot of his rhetoric. But anyway, I think that might've been who Buckley was responding to. And I just, I'm just spacing on his name, but um, uh, Buckley said, look, if you have one person, if you, if, if one guy pushes an old lady in front of an oncoming bus and another guy pushes an old lady out of the way of an oncoming bus, it simply will not do to describe them both as the sorts of men who push old ladies around context matters. And, um, Whatever you think about us putting, you know, immigrants in detention centers as we try to figure out their refugee status or any of that kind of stuff. And Lord knows I have my criticisms 
of how Trump handled all of that kind of stuff. It is just an apples and oranges thing to say that America, because it holds immigrants illegally coming into the United States of America in detention while it tries to figure out in accordance with the rule of law what to do with them, um, either send them home or let them into the country, to compare that to the Chinese government running um, a mass concentration camp system where they are rounding up citizens of their own country, um, subjecting them to all sorts of hardships, including, you know, there are accounts of rape and torture and all of these things. And even if those things weren't true, the actual just flat out policy of destroying their religion, destroying their culture, re-educating them into pliable vassals of the Chinese Communist Party, to say that's somehow comparable to what the United States is doing is just morally atrocious. Um, and you get this, but you get this kind of, she gets this kind of hearing because she, first of all, uses all of the right sort of code phrases and checks the box about being anti-Trump and talks about white privilege and white supremacy and yada, yada, yada. And so people get ensorcelled by these, you know, these, this word magic and um, think there's an argument there. There's not an argument there. It is just, it is an outrage um, that people can put forward that kind of stuff. I'm not saying First Amendment, you know, that they, they, they should be censored or barred from doing it. I'm saying it's an outrage that we live in a culture where that kind of thing gets anything like a hearing, where that editors say, oh, yeah, run with this. This is a great argument. Um, and I think that one of the reasons why the left gets so um, uh, out of sync and so easily parodied and mocked is precisely because they live in this bubble where these kinds of arguments and this kind of formulation and language gets bandied around so much that it becomes um, sort of in, an inescapable bubble. Um, and just one last thing about China before we move on. You know, this is, again, this is a hobby horse of mine. I've made this point a lot. But, you know, if you are a, if you are truly sincere in your hatred of, I don't know, um, white supremacy or um, Jim Crow, um, then you should be treating China like it was South Africa in the 1980s. You should be freaking out because if China were, if the Han Chinese, if the Han Chinese were Swedes, right? If they were blonde and blue eyed, um, and the Uyghurs were, um, I'll just say Uyghurs remained, you know, Asian, uh, it would be so transparently obvious to these people how racist China is, how structurally racist China is. And you know, this gets me to a really important peeve of mine. Um, the whole argument about systemic racism and structural racism and critical race theory and all of this stuff, when that, st when that stuff first came around, you know, it came out of critical legal studies and all the rest, it was the argument, which I think had some merit and still does have some merit, is that the system, the institutional arrangements that we have in this society um, uh, can have racist results, even if there are no, there's no racist intent currently behind them. 
Um, and you know, the, the, it was, this is where all those theories about disparate impact come from, right? Where you have certain standards for hiring that because of inequities, social inequities between the African American population and the white population, the net result is that black people end up getting discriminated against, even though that was not the intent of people hiring. Um, one of my classic examples of this, which I've written about a lot and talk about a lot in liberal fascism, is the minimum wage. The minimum wage actually was originally intended by lots of its creators for racial reasons. It was racist. The whole argument was is that um, uh, that I think it was who? What was it? God, what was his name? It's not E. H. Carr. He's the historian. Anyway, there's this famous line. Um, Maybe it was by Richard Alley, but about how, uh, you know, the, the coolie, meaning Japanese laborers, the coolie cannot outwork the white man, but he can underlive him. And the point was, is that if you uh, re required employers to pay a minimum wage, uh, you would no longer resort to the cheap, allegedly crappy labor of non-white workers but you would um, only hire white men, white men to do this kind of stuff. It was a barrier to entry for minorities. And it was deeply enmeshed in notions of white supremacy. And, um, and this kind of thinking applied to things like the Davis-Bacon Act, which was at the heart of the New Deal and which organized labor still loves, which says that you have to pay um, prevail, what they call prevailing wages in various jurisdictions if you're going to have federal contracts or government contracts. And the express intent by either Bacon or Davis, I can't remember which, was at least in part to uh, make sure that uh, black people wouldn't get those New Deal jobs. That if you're going to pay premium rates, you're going to get a quote unquote premium race uh, for those jobs and you would freeze out black people from those jobs. Now, I think all of this is important to know and it's important historical context to know. It doesn't mean that Davis Bacon today is necessarily racist. It doesn't mean that the minimum wage is necessarily racist. Although I've talked here a bunch about how I think the minimum wage often does have um, a disparate impact on minorities who of low education who are who desperately need their first job, their first experience in the labor market. But um, but it's not intended that way. That's my point, right? And that was that is sort of a good example of where this systemic racism argument began. It was a way to say, look, we can't find any evidence that there are any like Klansmen, you know, in the HR department. Um, but the net result of these hiring policies or the net result of these um, uh, law enforcement policies are having a disparate impact um, racially. And I think that stuff does happen and it's worth looking at and it's, and if it's fixable, it's worth fixing. Um, but what's been lost now is that the sort of Beto O'Rourke's, um, have, have changed the argument. And now systemic racism isn't an argument about the unintended consequences of policies that are vestigial, that have, you know, that are vestigial holdovers from the racist past or have unintended consequences. It's that America is just systemically racist, that we're all racists, um, that white people, um, or I should say that black people are in the position that they're in today and have whatever hardships they have today 
because all white people are racist. And that's what systemic racism has come to mean. And that's not the meaning that it originally had. And I just don't think it's, it's factually true. But the way that these people, the way that sort of the Bedouin work types talk about systemic racism, if you want a real example of that, you know where you look? You look to China. In China, if you're, not, if you're not Han Chinese, it's very difficult and sometimes impossible to get an internal passport to go to labor market, to, to, to move, to take advantage of you know, labor markets in big cities. It's almost impossible to get into elite schools. Um, they have a abject policy of Han supremacy in China, and it's just out there flagrantly in the open. And yet the, the people who... Um, large numbers of the people who are loudest about the problems of white supremacy and systemic racism here in the United States are also the very same people who think that any criticism or demonization of the Chinese is racist. And that's just back guano crazy. Um, and it's a great example of, you know, this thing I talk about a lot called the coalition instinct, where, you know, you have all sorts of cognitive dissonance and hypocrisy and contradictions that you tolerate within your coalition, within, you know, your team, um, but that enrage you uh, when you see them in the other team. And I think this helps explain a lot of the stupidity and ridiculousness that we see in partisan politics today. You know, all these people who are just getting, you know, all bent out of shape about how corrupt Joe Biden is, allegedly is and don't have a peep, don't say a peep about how corrupt, you know, Donald Trump allegedly is. Um, this idea that, you know, these people are profoundly offended by the corrupt nepotism of Hunter Biden, but think that like uh, Don Jr. and the other one are, um, you know, uh, you know, pillars of the entrepreneurial spirit uh, is just, it's just exactly exactly what I'm talking about with the coalition instinct that lets you have it gives makes you blind to the foibles of your own side and acutely aware of the foibles of the other side. Um, sort of like when Milhouse and in The Simpsons um, finds a candy wrapper, apparently you know allegedly left behind by one of the kids from Shelbyville who they all hate, and Milhouse says that's something like. Oh, it's just like those Shelby Villians. I hear they love candy for its sweet, sweet taste. Um, this, you know, this ability to pin out some, pull out something that's absolutely true of your own side, um, and only use it as a weaponized norm against the other side. Um, and so we have this situation where, for all sorts of, I would argue, pretty dumb reasons that come from this. You know, the, the, the stuff I was talking about earlier um, with the way kids are indoctrinated in college campuses about anti-colonialism and post-colonialism and people of color and white supremacy and all that, that they cannot get their head around that a country of one point, I don't know, four billion people um, might be really bad about the things they claim to care about simply because they are people of color. And it's this weird, you know, for all the talk about, you know, uh, cultural hegemony and cultural superiority and cultural appropriation and, 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 you know, the inability to sort of understand alien cultures, the projection of 
bullshit campus identity politics onto geopolitics is really kind of astounding. Anyway, okay, I'm done with all that. Um, and I got to keep brushing the hair out of my eyes, which is driving me crazy. Um, I did trim the beard because uh, I just I, I couldn't handle it anymore. I was really freaking out when I looked at myself in the mirror. I think I talked about this before, but um, I just haven't gotten around to getting my hair cut. So I have not, I don't believe I've gotten a haircut in all of 2020 and it's longer than um, it's ever been before. And I just don't, I, I don't know what I'm going to do about it. But I do know that if I was losing it, probably the first place I would go to would be keeps. For a lot of people, your hair is like this important statement about you. Um, you know, uh, Donald Trump doesn't like to hire bald people. Um, uh, you, you, there is, it's an unfair thing. I think my dad was bald. Um, I used to be terrified about how I was going to go bald. But there is this, you know, male vanity is such that it just and society is such and and our lizard brains are such that um having a full head of hair um opens doors for you and it's an important thing to have if you can have it and that's what keeps helps you doing two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35 the best way to prevent hair loss is to do something about it while you still have hair left with keeps you can get treated from home you used to have to go to the doctor's office for your hair loss prescription. Now, thanks to Keeps, you can visit a doctor online and get a hair loss medication delivered right to your home. They make it easy and deliver your medication every three months so you can say goodbye to the pharmacy, checkout lines, and awkward doctor's visits. Of the two FDA-approved hair loss products out there, um, you may have tried them before, but never at this, at this price because what Keeps does is it also offers the generic versions. Keeps Treatments typically take between four to six months to see results, so it's important to act fast. The sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save. Find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors, and more than 100,000 men trust Keeps for their hair loss prevention medication. Keeps treatment starts at just $10 a month. Plus, for a limited time, you can get your first month free. So if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, Go to keeps.com slash dingo to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash dingo. Go to keeps.com slash dingo. We thank Keeps for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Okay, so um, today's G-File, which is when it, by now is probably wended its way towards your email box was a bit of a weird one. Um, I go after Michael Anton's ridiculous essay about how we're going to have a coup. The Democrats are plotting a coup. Um, I revisit my argument that there's a, that there's a um, different way to think about centrism these days. I wrote my LA Times column about this. I read about it again in the G-File, so I won't belabor it. But basically, um, you know, the people who feel like they're taking crazy pills, regardless of whether they're liberal or conservative in their political views or their ideological views, in some ways, they're now the new center because so much of the institutional left and so much of the institutional right these days is in the perpetual business of, uh, of doomsaying and of taking 
the worst caricatures of the other side or the worst examples of the other side and holding them up as representative of the entire other side. I mean, I, I, I know comfortably smug this guy on Twitter, he's a master troller, but you know, I just roll my eyes when I hear Tucker Carlson or when I see smugs tweets talking about how every Antifa rioter is a Biden voter, um, which is just a really weird um, thing to actually believe if you actually believe it. Um, you know, I mean, Antifa types are, you know, I, I, you know, they're a narco Marxist radicals. Um, the idea that they're, um, wildly in favor of, uh, the Senator who was basically a pawn of the credit card industry for most of his life, um, is just ridiculous to me, but this is the kind of thing that we get from both sides now. And I normally, I hate both sidesism arguments, but you know, if you still kind of believe in the rule of law and liberal institutions and liberal democratic capitalism with or without, you know, a generous welfare state, those are perfectly legitimate arguments to have. But if you don't think your opponents are metaphysically, ontologically, um, epistemologically evil incarnate and that people can disagree about the best way to live and that, um, and they can disagree about the right and proper role of government without turning them into, um, monsters on one side or the other. Um, that kind of makes you a centrist these days because so much of the institutional left is just 100% invested in this sort of resistance caricature um, white supremacy stuff. And so much of the the loudest parts of the institutional right are invested in Trump and nationalist rhetoric and, and how the, you know, Antifa is coming for your, you know, your grandma's house in the suburbs and all of that. And if you don't subscribe to the hype, if you think there are legitimate arguments, little kernels of legitimate arguments to both sides, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, but you just don't think that these cartoons really describe reality and you don't think that we are on the verge of civil war um, or that we're one election away from the end of America and the Flight 93 garbage. Um, if you reject the catastrophization of politics, psychologically in a certain sense, culturally in a certain sense, that makes you a centrist these days. And so I can have you know, really thoughtful conversations with, uh, you know, like my friend Cass Sunstein, who we had on here, disagree with him about a lot of politics and stuff, but he's, you know, he's not a rabid Marxist who wants to tear down um, Judeo-Christian civilization. Um, you know, Jonathan Haidt is sort of a basic liberal guy, um, but I have more in common with him these days, even though I'm ideologically very different than people like him. Um, because I want to just tune out so much of the noise from both sides and have actual conversations about um, reality. And uh, and so anyway, that's sort of my argument about all that. The thing I wanted to um, close out on, though, is the stuff I read about a bit in the G-File as well about predicting the future. You know, so much of this stuff, um, this catastrophization of politics, this Flight 93-ism, is um, based on the fact that so many people, and I'm really talking about 
within the milieu of elites in the sense of people who are in academia, people who are running major media outlets, um, people who are part of the sort of institutionalized Republican or Democratic Party, um, they either believe in their hearts that um, we are on the precipice of doom, or they believe in their hearts that they have to say that we are in order to produce the politics that they want. And, um, and it's all predicated on their certainty about what the future has in store for us. And if you just go back and you look at just in our, you know, and, and let's assume the average listener here is, you know, plus or minus my age by a decade or two, right? Um, just in the last 40 years, everything has changed in ways that virtually no one predicted. Um, you know, I'm, I'm recording this on 9-11. I'm not, you know, for years after 9-11, everyone thought, not everyone, but a lot of people thought, including me, that this is going to lead, the war on terror was going to be like the new Cold War, that, you know, uh, that Saudi Arabia was basically acting like the common turn and, and exporting revolutionary ideology around the world. And it was exporting all that stuff. But, uh, you know, the war on terror is over. Um, I'm not saying that we don't still have a challenge with Islamic radicalism. And I'm not saying for a minute that there aren't Islamic groups and, and ideologues out there who would love to revive the war on terror, you know. Um, but the, uh, the, the predictions that it was going to be this civilizational um, galvanizing contest just haven't panned out. Um, you know, I wrote a pretty mediocre column about how it would be kind of cool if, if Trump wins. And I think everybody knows I'm at best ambivalent about the idea of another four years of Donald Trump, but it would be pretty cool if he won because, uh, he got a majority of Hispanic votes. Um, and the reason why I think it would be cool or at least entertaining is that uh, first of all, this is the guy who said all these terrible things about, um, about immigrants, everybody of the sort of, uh, the MSNBC set was convinced that this was going to destroy, um, and destroy the Republican party with Hispanics for a lifetime. Um, a lot of Republicans, including me, thought it was going to do lasting damage to the Republican brand. And I still think it will, but if, you know, but Trump's still looking pretty good with Hispanics in Florida. Um, I talked about this a bit on the Dispatch podcast, I just remembered. Um, but let's just say for the sake of argument that Trump actually won a majority of the Hispanic vote. Well, that just blows up um, these identitarian arguments of the right and left um, completely. The, the identitarian part arguments on the left have been deeply invested in this idea that a majority minority country, like a majority non-white country, first of all, that it was a matter of ironclad demographic prophecy that we would get one. And we still probably will, although there are a lot of caveats to that. Um, but they thought that, that because minority voters are synonymous with progressive voters in their minds, that that would yield all of the... Um, progressive reforms that they've craved all along. Um, and the argument on the right uh, took many different forms. Some of it, I think, utterly defensible and not racist. 
you know, that wasn't what motivate, that's not what motivates Ramesh Banuru. Um, but the argument for, you know, that, that import, essentially importing voters, um, who are going to be disproportionately poor and dependent on social services was, uh, one way to, you know, hasten the demise or the rumpification of the Republican party. And, um, and I think there's some merit to that argument. At the same time, having been like uh, harassed by Groypers, which are a subset of the sort of alt-right neo-Nazi Copervagic phylum that uh, Michelle Malkin loves to defend, um, those guys basically say that it's the end of Western civilization if we bring in more brown people, that it's race suicide. Um, and... Well, and that's one of the reasons why you have to support Donald Trump, because he is the virtuous Viking knight, the paladin of defending white America and, and all that, or Euro-Americans and all that nonsense. And so what happens to all these paradigms if Hispanics all of a sudden uh, reelect Donald Trump? And uh, I think that would be a good thing. I think it would actually be a good thing. I mean, forget Donald Trump for a second, because that's it is sui generis. It would be a good thing if a majority of Hispanics um, actually voted for a Republican. It would have been a great thing if they voted for Mitt Romney in 2012, um, in part because it would mean that both parties couldn't afford to take Hispanics for granted. Um, but it would also show that, you know, this whole essentially academic uh, construct of Hispanics is kind of nonsense. You know, um, if, if you know Mexican-Americans or Cuban-Americans or Puerto Ricans or El Salvadorans or Argentinians or Brazilians um, um, or, you know, the hyphenated American, you know, counterparts of them, Mexican-Americans, Brazilian-Americans, et cetera, you know that they don't first and foremost see themselves as Hispanics. They see themselves as Brazilians or as Catholic Brazilians or Protestant Brazilians or Protestant El Salvadorans. Um, some of them might see themselves first and foremost as Shriners or uh, construction workers or, you know, doctors or lawyers. I mean, the point is, is I, as you know, I hate identity politics generally, this idea that you can reduce people to these abstract categories. But just as a matter of practical politics, Hispanic, there's an enormous amount of diversity among Hispanic Americans. Um, Californian, Mexican Americans have different political and cultural norms than Texans, than Texas Mexican Americans, in part because of the patterns of migration over the last, uh, you know, two centuries. Um, there's all sorts of important fault lines between these groups. You know, there are a lot of Cubans who have very strong opinion, opinions about other Hispanics. Um, meanwhile, as I pointed out in the column, you know, uh, the people who see Hispanics simply through the issue of immigration, um, which is how the national media talks about all this kind of stuff, they miss the, you know, they miss the fact for years that, you know, Cuban attitude, attitudes, at least until 2017 about immigration, were going to be different than Mexican-American attitudes towards, towards immigration because um, Cuba, Cubans had, Cuban refugees had a different immigration policy, this wet foot, dry foot thing. And, you know, and they got special, special 
um, treatment in immigration law for years and years because of you know uh, our policy towards Cuba. Um, meanwhile, you know, people talk about how Puerto Ricans have to care about immigration, and it's like they don't know that Puerto Ricans are already American citizens and can move here without a passport because they're freaking Americans. And so anyway, I think it would be great to blow up all of that stuff. Um, and I think some of the arguments that would come of it would be fascinating. I think you would see some people sort of of the Catholic integralist stripe, um, embracing immigration maybe a little bit more because um, they would make some argument about, you know, Catholic culture and, and, um, and nationalism or something like that. You would definitely see uh, some people on the left, particularly the, the fringier parts of the left, all of a sudden uh, uh, demothballing arguments about how, oh, these Hispanics from these traditionally authoritarian cultures are bringing their attitudes about caudillos and dictators into our politics, and they would fret it. Um, and I think most of those arguments would all be basically some variant of, of garbage or cliche, but it would be just sort of interesting to see. It would also, you know, help illuminate one of the more interesting myths about, you know, Hispanics in American life uh, today anyway, which is, you know, there's a reason why the census has to uh, talk about non-Hispanic whites, because a lot of Hispanics are white or quote unquote pass for white. A lot of Hispanics describe themselves as white. Um, it is just simply not this monolithic thing. And I love pointing out to people who say Latin X non-ironically that you know, only according to that 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 survey, only like two percent of Hispanics in America prefer the term. Um, it's a perfect example of that stuff I was talking about earlier about imposing shibboleths on people. But anyway, the the larger point is about predictions about the future. So much of our politics, sometimes for perfectly understandable reasons, you know, children are the future, and people care about the country that their children are going to grow up in, and that's a perfectly legitimate thing for politics to address. But so much of our arguments in our politics these days are about not just competing narratives, but about pre competing predictions about the future. Um, and the people who are the loudest are the ones who are most certain about how they're basic, you know, it's, it's not just a binary choice gag um, between, you know, Democrats and Republicans now. It is a binary choice between two futures, as if Everyone understands that this is lady or the tiger choice between two futures when everyone is talking out their ass. No one knows what the future is going to hold. Um, I'll read you from this memo that I love. I've written about it before. I may even have read, it, read from it before. Um, there was this guy, Lynn Wells, who um, um, wrote this famous in policy circles memo uh, for the Quadrennial Defense Review in 2001. Um, and, uh, I think Rum, Don, Rum, Don, Don, Rum, it was in response to this review ordered by Don Rumsfeld. And I think Rumsfeld called it one of the most brilliant pieces of analysis he's ever read. And it, it goes like this. I won't read you the whole thing, but you'll get the point. It, the title is thoughts for the 2001 quadrennial, quadrennial defense review. And it begins, if you'd been a security policymaker in the world's great, greatest power in 1900, you would have been a Brit looking warily at your age-old enemy, France. 
By 1910, you would be allied with France and your enemy would be Germany. By 1920, World War I would have been fought and won and you'd be engaged in a naval arms race with your erstwhile allies, the U.S. and Japan. By 1930, naval arms limitation treaties were in effect, the Great Depression was underway, and the defense planning standard said, quote, no more war for 10 years. Nine years later, World War II had begun. By 1950, Britain had lo- by 1950, Britain no longer was the world's greatest power. The atomic age had dawned, and a quote-unquote police action was underway in Korea. Ten years later, the political focus was on the missile gap. The strategic paradigm was shifting from mass retaliation to flexible response, and a few people had heard of Vietnam. By 1970, the peak of our involvement in Vietnam had come and gone. We were beginning detente with the Soviets and we were anointing the Shah as our protege in the Gulf region. And it goes on like this. Things change remarkably. Nobody knows how they're going to change. Every prediction that you would have made about the election, about the course of our politics, as early as January of this year, all look ridiculous now because of the pandemic. Um, Most of the predictions, pro and con, about what a Trump presidency would look like, kind of look ridiculous. Um, I'm not saying that it's not reasonable to worry about what a Trump presidency or a Biden presidency would look like. Um, But the idea that you have supreme confidence about what it will look like is a sign that you're buying into a narrative. And, um, And often what you're doing is you're buying into the loudest, most histrionic narrative out there. This idea that um, if Biden is elected, we get socialism. It leaves out all of these like important factors of like, well, not if the Republicans still hold on to the Senate. Um, and even if they lose the Senate, does Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, do they vote to get rid of the legislative filibuster? They don't vote to get rid of the legislative filibuster, particularly if Biden doesn't push it, then you're not looking at systemic, massive change in favor of socialism. But let's say you do get massive systemic change in favor of socialism somehow. Um, the idea that somehow that doesn't elicit a backlash. I mean, I remember all the gnashing of teeth and rending of cloth after Obamacare passed. And very few people predicted at the time that Obamacare would yield a massive Republican comeback where Democrats would lose a thousand elected seats across the elected offices across the country. Um, have a little faith in the sort of the dialectic of, dem- of democracy where no, you know, as, as T.S. Eliot says, there's no such thing as a truly lost cause because there's no such thing as a truly won cause. Overreach invites a counterreaction that trims it back. Um, and the idea that somehow, uh, whether you're, you think that Donald Trump is going to become a dictator if he's reelected, or if you think that Joe Biden is going to become, you know, Kamala Harris's um, sock puppet, which if he does, don't shake hands with Kamala. You don't know where it's been. Um, uh, it's fine to worry about these things or to think about these things. Um, but don't be so sure that you're right. Um, you know, the world that we predicted after nine 11 didn't come to pass. The world that we predicted after the financial crisis didn't come to pass. The world that we predicted after the Iraq war didn't come to pass. Um, the world's weird and messy, and it's dependent upon all sorts of factors that are beyond our control. 
and we respond to them as best that we can. Um, and if you think that these things are things to think about seriously, um, but not, you know, void your bowels over in a constant state of, of, of panic and working people up, um, you're kind of a centrist these days. And, you know, I bristle at calling myself a centrist because I used to mock centrists, I, you know, do it at great length in, in, in Tyranny Clichés, my underrated book. Um, but that's where we are these days is that sort of if, if, if you're not in a perpetual state of freaking out about our politics, um, look, I, and I'm guilty of freaking out about conservatism from time to time. I'll grant you that. Um, uh, but if, if, if you just think that there are things that are worth a calmer conversation about and a sense of humor about, um, uh, then you're kind of a centrist too. And, uh, I'll work harder on coming up with a different label for that because I know some people aren't going to like it. And with that, I'm going to sign off and I'll see you next time. Sure.